Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, here we are. Episode 101, Phase 2, Fascinating Nouns. Here we go. The next 100 episodes. And this one kind of piggybacks off of the previous episode, which was about the 100-inch Hooker Telescope, the 100th anniversary of the 100-inch telescope that basically helped us discover the universe. So this was at Mount Wilson Laboratories, formerly run by the Carnegie Institution for Science. But they've moved on. They've evolved. They've gotten bigger telescopes. And so down in Chile, they have one of the largest in the world. And with that telescope, they've discovered something incredible, a piece of scientific history, and that is a neutron star collision. They detected it. They were the first to detect it. And this has very big meaning. And we're going to get into that with one of their astronomers down there, Dr. Maria Drought, who's going to explain the significance of it, what it is, and why we should care. Um, personally, I find this to be absolutely fascinating. And we're going to get right into that with Dr. Maria Drought. Uh, so now, what is your expertise? Like, what, what, what do you love about space? So I mainly study uh, explosions in space. So I study supernova mainly, but also I've tried to study some more peculiar and exotic types of explosions that we're still trying to figure out what they are. And I also study just massive stars in nearby galaxies. So trying to understand stars before they might explode. See, now that is exciting. That's very exciting. Uh, Now, are you a fan of action films? Because they have a lot of explosions as well. I am a fan of action films. Yes, I am. I'm not sure if that's why, but um, yeah. So you're like the equivalent of an adrenaline junkie in the astronomy world. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Absolutely. You got the chance to see a real-life explosion as it happened. We're going to get to that in a second, but I want to talk about you a little bit more. Um, when you say you like, um, what is, what's the term you used, exotic explosions? Like, what, is yeah. an, what does an exotic explosion look like? So, I mean, it can look like anything. And the point really when I say exotic explosion is, or peculiar is a word we use a lot, it's something that we've never seen before. So this can be things that are incredibly rare in the universe. For instance, we discovered about a decade ago now that there are things called superluminous supernova. So supernova that are like a hundred times brighter than even just your run-of-the-mill boring supernova, which are already much brighter than the entire galaxy which they explode in for a period of about, about a month. Um, so they can be very rare things, or they can be another example of a rare thing is a tidal disruption event where a star wanders a little bit too closely to a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy and it gets torn apart. And when it does so, it emits light and it explodes. Um, but it can also be things that might actually just be more common. We just, until recently, we haven't been able to detect them. So I've studied a lot of very sort of fast or rapid explosions in space. So a normal supernova, how we observe it is we see something that gets brighter and then fainter in time. A normal supernova will take months to a year to do that. We've now found some that get just as bright as a supernova, but then fade away and are gone in a matter of days or a week. Now, when you, that, that's incredible. Uh, that's that's a pretty long list of very strange supernovas. I think when people think of a supernova, it is just an explosion, like one, you know, just one star just exploding. Um, yeah. In one way, boring. That's boring stuff. You're into the cool stuff. Uh, <laughs> now, when you say that these things that is, this, you call it a superluminous supernova, it explodes and it's brighter than the entire galaxy. How's that possible? Um, just the amount of light that it emits in, and it's like that for about a month or something like that. But yeah, it can outshine the rest of the galaxy as a whole. There's just that much energy that is output so that when we observe it, that's what we see. Now, why does it produce light? 
That is actually an excellent question. Thank you, Maria. Whenever we study uh, explosions or different things in space, that is the first question that we try to answer is, okay, we see this new light, but what is causing that? What is producing it? And it can be different depending what type of explosion you're observing. Many of the explosions we observe in space are, the light is actually produced by this is actually this fun by the radioactive decay of heavy elements that are synthesized during the explosion itself. So many supernovae as a whole, they will explode and they will produce things like iron and other um, nickel is a common one, but radioactive. And so they will decay and that produces energy, which can then lead to light that we see. But there are other possible sources of energy that um, can power explosions as well. Wow. So that's pretty incredible. I, I mean, so essentially what you're doing is figuring out how all the heavy elements in the world or in the world, uh, look how small my mind is, in the universe are created. Yes, absolutely. So are these things like big furnaces, essentially? Like, you know, on Earth, when we want to make new metals, we take old metals, and we melt them down. So is that kind of happening at the atomic level um, on a galactic scale? Yeah. So in, and again, the exact physical process that happens depends on the precise explosion. For instance, the one we're going to talk about in a bit, it's a different process than a normal run-of-the-mill supernova probably goes through. But yeah, you this thing explodes and it, it like throws out these elements and subatomic particles out into the universe with enormous amounts of energy. And when you pump that much energy into that much material, that's enough. It, yeah, it's pushes things together and undergoes what we call explosive nucleosynthesis. So there's just so much energy in this material being thrown out that you can actually take all of those individual particles and elements and synthesize new ones. Explosive nucleosynthesis? Yeah, that's the term that's the described. term of the podcast. I love it. Uh, so essentially what you're saying is like these types of explosions are the blacksmiths of the universe. Yes, absolutely. I like that analogy. And what's really cool, and this goes back to your love of action films, when you watch an action film and you see an explosion, right? They're cool because you get to see this big fireball and you get to hear this big, you know, kind of sound. But you don't get that in space. You only get the light. You don't really get the sound. Obviously, you don't really get the sound. You don't get the sound at all because there's no way you could hear it because uh, we're not close enough to it because the light travels significantly faster. I don't know if you knew this or not, but light travels significantly faster than sound, which is important. Absolutely. I mean, especially uh, sound doesn't propagate very well through a vacuum, which space is not. <laughs> sure. So. Fair enough. But what a nerd alert. It doesn't propagate through a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, no, but that's very true. But now that kind of leads into what we're going to talk about. Um, and I'm going to ask you one other question because I think we've teased the future a lot. I'm very excited to talk about it. But there's something you and I need to get straight. I got a little beef with you, Maria Drought. Personally? So, yeah, personally. So you um, are you from Wisconsin? Yes, I am from Wisconsin. Okay. So I'm from Chicago, and I went to school uh, in the northern part of Chicago. And I got to tell you, we had a term for the, the border between Wisconsin and Illinois, and it was called the Great Cheddar Curtain. And uh, <laughs> so there was an extreme amount of animosity between us and, and you Cheddarites, Cheddarheads. And I've never heard that phrase. My fam some of my family actually lives in the northern Chicago suburbs. Oh, I've never good. heard that phrase. So that's no, good. they're okay. <laughs> your other part of your family is cool. Um, but I kind of feel, you know, to use a 30-year-old reference here, I kind of feel like I'm Ronald Reagan and you're Mikhail Gorbachev, and I feel like we're going to mend <laughs> a lot of fences here. Okay, yeah, well, it's good to tear down walls, so sure. this is good, this, yeah, and <laughs> nice we can talk. <laughs> and the cheddar curtain sounds like a delicious wall to tear down. Okay, now that that's out of the way, Maria, um, all right, enough, enough of the tease in the future. You guys made, um, at the Carnegie Science Center, uh, where you're, you work for the Carnegie Science Center, right? I'm not misspeaking there, that'd be bad. Yeah, yeah, the Carnegie Institution for Science. The <laughs> yeah. That's the second time I did that, and I wrote it down. So it's the Carnegie Institute for Science? Yeah, Carnegie Institution for Science. <laughs> institution for <laughs> Science. I promise you, I'll get it. It does not, it's not a lack of respect for the great institution for which you work. Uh, so now you guys made an incredible paradigm-shifting, uh, mind-altering discovery. Um, break it down in terms that a three-year-old could understand. Oh, boy. Um, we discovered the first visual light Okay, discover is too big of a word. We got to dial it back a little bit. Okay, let's see. Three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> we discovered where the gold in the universe came from. Uh, <laughs> All right, forget it. You can talk, talk at a high school level. Yeah, so essentially what we did was a few months ago, we found the first um, visual light from a merger that was detected by gravitational by the LIGO and Virgo gravitational wave detectors on Earth. So they have been operating at their current level for a few years now, and just earlier this year got the Nobel Prize for the first direct detections of gravitational waves in our universe. Um, but all of their first detections were the discovery of these very massive black holes that were merging. And we've always, I mean, for decades now, um, astronomers and other scientists have been hoping to detect both gravitational waves and light from a single source. And we did that for the first time a few months ago. That's pretty incredible. Hmm. Um, now, do you guys expect to get the Nobel Prize? No, absolutely not. <laughs> you don't? Why not? Um, well, so the Nobel Prize often is... It is for advances in our understanding of fundamental physics most often. And so the discovery of gravitational waves and the direct detection that they exist um, offered a wonderful confirmation of Einstein's theories as well as other things. This, um, it's more of an understanding of how some of these events that create intense gravitational waves are our understanding of how they now impact the universe around us. There is fundamental physics in it as well, but I'm not sure that we'll get a second Nobel Prize for it. Others might disagree with me. We'll see. We'll see how well, it goes. Well, when you say second Nobel Prize, you you have a Nobel Prize already? No, I meant that gravitational waves. Great gravitational waves. I got it. Yeah. No two-time, no no repeats yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in Nobel Prize? Yeah. I mean, it happens in sports all the time. I didn't know if you could have like a back-to-back -back or a three-peat or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not not very usual. <laughs> uh, so now, now this, so this is pretty incredible because essentially what it did is now you do have you see things. Obviously, we've been looking at the light of the universe for for a long time. I don't know exactly when the first people looked up and saw the stars, but uh, we can say it's probably millions of years ago. And now this is really the first time where you can kind of, in an altered sense, hear what's going on, right? Yeah, and it's something that it offers us this ability to learn even more about individual systems or how different types of things in the universe impact uh, sort of the evolution of the universe as a whole and our understanding of the physics. So we call it multi-messenger astronomy, and that's when you can understand what's going on from a given event with multiple messengers, where messengers, so light is one type of messenger, and that's what astronomers for you know hundreds of years have been doing. Gravitational waves would be another. Neutrinos these tiny subatomic particles would be a third type of messenger that we could have. And so we really want to identify as many of those together as possible so we can learn more and more about the systems. And they all give us information. It's funny because a messenger sounds like a very corporate term for the type of things yeah. you're detecting. Um, but it's a great way to kind of lump them mm -hmm. together because it makes sense because you are getting information from all of them. Yes. And it's very unique and different information. So like the gravitational waves, these are formed when very massive things are sort of moving and in spiraling around each other. So imagine this binary system. This, what we're talking about now, I don't even know if we said it is, it was the merger of two neutron stars. These are two very heavy stars that are spinning around each other. And the gravitational waves, when you detect them, tell you things like, what was the mass of the objects? Um, how were they spiraling in on each other? What was formed after the fact? Whereas when you can detect light from that system, what that's telling you is about all the material that was sort of thrown off in the explosion and what types of elements were created and are there thrown out into the universe and can be used to form the next generation of stars and planets. Yeah, I don't think we did say that. It's very important because I wanted to ask you a question because some people say it's a neutron star collision. Some say a merger. Um, is there a real difference or is this more like a PC term where we like to be very nice and say, oh, they merge together instead of colliding together because it has a very aggressive tone to it? Um, uh, they could be somewhat interchangeable. I would say um, a merger... Yeah, or collision. It could be either. Often you refer to mergers when it's something like it's this an actual binary system. So they're gravitationally spinning around each other, much like the Earth is spinning around the sun, but then they're getting closer and closer and merge together. Whereas a collision, you could also just have two things, like two galaxies could collide as they're sort of heading towards each other. But they're somewhat interchangeable terms. Well, I, but it is a very distinct difference because an merger would, would imply that these two, because they're solid objects, right? Or no? Yes. 
<laughs> so if they're solid objects, they're not going to just like slowly meld into each other in a very harmonious way. These things are going to dynamically interact with each other, right? Yeah. That would be a collision. Yeah. I mean, and it's tough, though, because it's sort of the actual process of the merger happening. So they're somewhat solid objects, but as you get closer and closer, so as these two neutron stars are spinning around and getting closer and closer, they're solid, but at a certain point, the gravitational pull is so intense, you can actually have them a sort of deform. We call it tidally deformed. So imagine tides, which cause the tides, you know, here on Earth, between the Earth and the Moon. But this intense pulling is stretching out these objects. So it's turning them more, I wouldn't exactly call it a fluid, but they can sort of morph wind around each other. And in that process, some of these tails of material actually get thrown out and don't end up in sort of the central object when the two of them have merged together. And that's what we're seeing with the optical light. Oh, that is pretty incredible, actually. That would be a merger. I'll give you that, Maria. That does sound more like a merger. Um, now, now, there was an incredible information embargo on this neutron star merger. Uh, why all the secrecy? So... Well, this has been something which um, dates back to um, earlier on when the LIGO and the Virgo consortiums were starting, which are these incredible detectors here on Earth to try and identify and directly detect gravitational waves. Um, and it's really um, all of the embargo and secrecy um, comes from um, that side, from the LIGO and Virgo consortiums. And they their desire to, to sort of fully understand their data and vet it and process it before it is released outwards. So how it works is that there are now, and our group is one of them, but hundreds of astronomers throughout the world who have signed agreements with LIGO and Virgo such that they will tell us when they detect things immediately, although they do not announce in public, but they will tell us immediately as long as then we collaborate and work with them to sort of jointly um, announce our results to um, the rest of the world. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now, how did you know, because you guys were on there, because kind of the key to this is being the first person to do it, um, like in anything. Well, how do you prove you guys were the first ones to see this? How do we prove we were the first ones to see it? So um, throughout this process, because everyone has um, signed this agreement with LIGO and Virgo in order to get the alerts. And part of that is we are also required to report to them what observations we have taken. Um, and this is in part to ensure that as a community, as a whole, as astronomers, we get the best possible data. So everyone else can adapt their observing plan and what they're doing based on new observations coming in. So um, like many other astronomers throughout the world, after this um, announcement from LIGO and Virgo came out that they had detected this neutron star merger, and we thought there'd be a very good chance we could see light from this. Um, we had a very frantic afternoon of preparing for our observations, um, but then it was really, so we started getting on sky, and LIGO and Virgo give you sort of a patch of the sky about the size of 120 full moons where this could have exploded in. So we are going with our optical telescopes and basically searching that region, looking for any new source in the sky. And as it turns out, if you want, we can go into more of how crazy this was, but we found the new source within about 10 or 15 minutes of the beginning of the night. And we then announced this to the rest of the astronomers um, who have signed this agreement with LIGO and Virgo. And I mean, other people were observing that night too. And since then, we've had a thorough debrief of sort of when everyone's observations were taken and when everyone first identified it. And I think we were the first to detect it in the optical and infrared light by about a half an hour or so. Wow. So you found it within 10 minutes? Of the beginning of the night in Chile. So it was about 12 hours after the alert from LIGO, but at that point we had to wait for it to actually be dark in Chile. Oh, wow. So you guys had a disadvantage then, significant 12-hour disadvantage. Well, compared to, so, and I should say too, the first actual light from this event probably was gamma rays that were detected 1.7 seconds after the neutron star merger detected by LIGO by the Fermi gamma ray satellite. Um, so they also announced that they had detected gamma rays, but similar to LIGO, they can only pinpoint the location of this to, you know, a large swath of the sky. Theirs was even bigger. So we now think that is almost certainly it was related, but at the time it was not 100% sure. And we still didn't know exactly where this explosion happened. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, but every other astronomer, it was similar. Just by the time the alert went out, Chile was going to be the first place where um, we could look for optical visible light from this explosion. 
So everyone had that delay. Now, you said it was a crazy night. Is it really a crazy night or is this a crazy night from astronomer terms? Well, okay. It is the most hectic and crazy night of observing that I have ever participated in. And I would think most people would also think it was sort of an unusual day. Did it involve, um, did it involve alcohol, drugs, and any other kind of debauchery? Okay, no, it didn't. It's not that yeah. crazy then, Maria. That's what I mean. This is scientific yeah, terms yeah. of being crazy. Yeah, okay. Yes, it's a crazy scientific night. <laughs> okay, um, so, what is it, so what happened on this night? Okay, so we got the alert in mid-afternoon. And we knew that Chile was going to be the first place with the possibility of looking and finding this explosion or the light from it. Um, so we had about 10 hours to prepare what we were going to do. And it was especially um, hectic because we knew that Chile was going to be the first place where we could observe this. But the patch of the sky where this exploded was only going to be visible above the horizon when it was dark out for about an hour and a half at the beginning of the night. So, you know, the stars move across the sky. And so any given star is only, you can only actually observe it for a certain number of hours. And this, it was only going to be up above the horizon for about an hour and a half. So we knew we only had that much time to search. So we prepared as much as possible, creating um, many lists of galaxies that we were going to point our telescopes at. And we were operating three of the telescopes here at Las Campanas Observatory at once. So we had people sort of on each telescope actually doing the observing, and then some of the rest of us were um, downloading the data in real time and sort of flipping back and forth and looking for new images on the sky compared to other images that have been taken months ago. Um, and yeah, it's just much of the preparations only got ready, you know, in like the half an hour or 10 minutes before sunset, whereas usually you plan weeks in advance for exactly what you're going to do with every minute on one of these big telescopes. Um, so so yeah. it wasn't like it wasn't like crazy, like a reality film, because I expected like, you know, tensions are high. You know, there, there's already kind of a divide between you and someone else. You have beef with someone else that that tempers flare. People get into fights. Um, did someone just say, we're going to do it anyway? And just like turn the telescope in the, that direction. Um, it sounds like a night of craziness is just making more lists than usual. Have <laughs> I kind well, of have I kind I, of encapsulated I mean, it, very, it properly? I mean, but it was very sort of. Uh, less thoroughly prepared ahead of time, as you might imagine. So things were like last minute decisions that were, yes, we're actually pointing in this direction as opposed to this one. Oh, we're going to use this list and not that one. And oh, we should switch this instrument. And we found this detector. So now with five minutes notice, we're going to switch instruments and do something else than we were planning to before. I would say probably your reality series started after that first night because, um, we then, of course, once we found it, we absolutely wanted to keep following it because that's discovering it, of course, is very important. But really, the science comes from everything it does after the fact for weeks and months later. And so this happened on August 17th. And August 21st was when the solar eclipse was happening in the U.S. And so many of us had plans already. And so much of the observations, which we had to coordinate, so we had to send many emails trying to coordinate, you know, 20, 25 different observers over the next three weeks to observe for us, um, happened when some of them, myself included, I was supposed to leave on a road trip the next day to road trip up to Idaho for the solar eclipse and then go. So now that's exciting. Now, yeah. now I'm with you. Now I'm with you. Now you're with me? Yeah. yeah. And then go packing across Utah for the next week through the national parks. Um, and so I still did that along with several of my colleagues, including Ben Chappie. And so we're literally coordinating Ooh, in here. observations from the backseat of a car for the next week and a half as we're, you know, hiking through national parks. We're yeah, coordinating all the observations from a car. I was downloading data from someone's cell phone, tethering off of it. And I actually, like looked at and was um, processing a lot of the data coming in in a tent for the next week. So that's sort of the craziness, I think, was the whole process over the next few weeks. So now that's a little more exciting than just making a bunch of lists. So, I mean, trying to coordinate looking at the, sc at the sky while in the backseat of a car doing God knows what. Uh, mm -hmm. Now that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Now you guys worked with some UC Santa Cruz scientists on this, right? Yes, that's right. So our group was a collaboration of those two institutions. Oh, so now that that's like their party school. They can't give you guys a couple of tips on how to like loosen up a little bit when you're you know, <laughs> checking out the stars? Yeah, I think we were pretty loose throughout the entire process. <laughs> now, have you ever seen a banana slug, by the way? Because those things are, if you haven't, they're incredible. 
I actually haven't, shockingly. So oh. I've been there several times. You know, I have close colleagues that are there. Uh, but just, I think the times of year when I've been there, I've never, I've seen pictures, of course, but I've never oh. seen them. These things, they're, they're amazing. You have to experience them because they're, there's nothing else like it. I mean, they are, yeah, they're, they're incredible. I, I, I love that place. The, the banana slugs are my favorite mascot, and I do love UC Santa Cruz. I do want to say that. Um, favorite mascot in the world. So you guys worked with them. So this was a collaboration. How many institutions were working on this, this project? Well, so our group... Um, <laughs> I mean, throughout the world, hundreds <laughs> of scientists were working on this project. Um, our group in particular, so it was mainly led by um, those of us at Carnegie and at UC Santa Cruz. But all in all, because, again, we uh, asked for observations to be taken of this for about three weeks. And so there were many different people from institutions around the world observing on the telescopes over that time period who graciously agreed to observe it for us. So I think even our groups and our papers have something like 20 some institutions on them. And yeah, it was literally hundreds throughout the world. Wait, now why would you tell another institution to observe it for you? Because then wouldn't they just take the credit and say like, well, we saw it first. Sorry, guys. No, okay. Science is collaborative. Like, yes, there are different groups. But so how it worked for us was so um, at Las Campanas Observatories, which is operated by Carnegie, um, we have like many of our scientists are observing on the telescope from night to night. um, And then other scientists are um, awarded time as well. So, yeah, I mean, it was literally this is important. It was I mean, it probably won't end up being a once in a lifetime opportunity, but certainly a very unique one. And so we just send emails to people who are observing on the telescope that night being like, this is what's going on. Can you observe this for us? And we'll pay you back time later. Uh, so. well, well, no, well, because it doesn't make any sense because it's a collaborative effort, right? Like, I guess I can get behind that team sport and all, but then you guys put out the paper and are like, well, we're first. So obviously there's a value to being first. Um, but yet it's a collaborative effort. So where does the competition end and collaboration begin and vice versa? Well, it's sort of a fine line, but I mean, everyone who took observations for us is on our papers. So, so basically it's, we're the first to see it first, meaning every scientific institution with a telescope around the world. No, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Then why the secret embargo if everyone's in on it? Okay. And again, I said, so it's not the astronomers who dictate the embargo. That's from the gravitational wave side. Um, And yeah, I mean, there were clearly different groups that ended up. So, and this happens all the time in transit. So time domain science. So this is a study of explosions in space, which is what I do. And this process happens all the time where some explosion happens, it's very exciting. And in order to get good data, so if we had not asked people to observe for us, we would not have gotten data that night, right? Like, and that was necessary. And my work especially was understanding, yes, the discovery was important, but it's really what did this crazy explosion do afterwards? And what does that tell us about the universe? And you need data to do that. So, and unlike, you know, a star that's always there, a galaxy that's always there, this thing's happening and then it's gone. So you need to turn every telescope in that direction, um, in pointed to that direction to get as much data as possible. And then afterwards, there's always some shaking out where different groups that have taken different data um, sort of decide who's pooling data together and what papers are going to get written because it wouldn't be good, you know, it's not nearly as impactful if every institution published their one data point in its own paper versus if you sort of have groups coming together and you can actually, for instance, my paper on this object, we looked at what the light looked like from the UV through the infrared over a period of a month. And we can actually say something about the science of this object from that, whereas from any individual data point that different people took, that wouldn't be possible. So everything always shakes down. There's always some competition. And you might be on a paper with somebody for one object and not for another. So it's always a fine balance in the study of supernova and explosion. All right, you make a fair point. That's a good argument. But I guess my point is, uh, maybe it's because I love sports. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any diva astronomers anymore. I mean, are the days of Edwin Hubble and George Ellery Hale, these guys who Hubble discovered this, or basically figured out the size of the universe on his own with a plate. You know, he gets the credit for that. It's not, oh, it was a collaboration of scientists from around the world. It's like, no, Edwin Hubble did that, man. He did that. Well, but you can argue whether Edwin Hubble did do that by himself or if it was a collaboration of scientists. Who actually- no one's arguing. Who's arguing that? Everyone says Edwin Hubble. Boom. Off top of your head. Boom. Edwin Hubble. He did that. So he has, you know, 
and he clearly did very important scientific work. There were many other scientists who were also working on stuff like that at a similar time period. Do you know? Do you know their so, names, Maria? Do you know their names? No, I do not know. All <laughs> exactly. Know exactly. My point. Uh, so, are there any diva astronomers now? I'd love to hear about people who have that Edwin Hubble streak in them. I mean, of course there was competition on this, and of course certain people... <laughs> <laughs> you don't like talking about this, do you? All right, fine. We'll move no, on, Maria. Uh, so the, the neutron star, this, this merger, what, what are neutron stars? So neutron stars are basically incredibly dense leftovers from previous supernova explosions. So it's the dense leftover core of a massive star. So you have a really large star, so something that is at least 10 times heavier than our own sun, and it sort of lives out its life. But if you're that big, you will eventually explode as a supernova. And when you do so, what's left over after that? So most of it gets thrown out. You synthesize a bunch of new elements that are thrown out into the universe. But left over afterwards is either a neutron star or if the star is very, very large, it could be a black hole. But most of the time it ends up being a neutron star that's left over afterwards. And these things are these are events that so imagine something that has a, it's about as heavy as our own sun, but it's squished down into the size of maybe a few kilometers across. Well, I mean, one of the things I heard is that a teaspoon of a neutron star, which seems like a very strange amount, but let's say a teaspoon weighs as much as all the human beings on Earth. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty dense. Yeah, that's pretty dense. (laughs) So when these things are, when the, when the merger is happening, there's quite a bit of material that is going into each other. Like it's, there's quite a bit packed into one little space. Yeah. So it's, it's all very packed closely together. Um, and yeah, you need two of these. So each one is maybe a little bit heavier than our own sun, but in this incredibly small area. And then there's two of them spinning very, very rapidly um, around each other. Now, now, what I was reading is that these are as close as you can get to a black hole without being a black hole? Yes, that's correct. So what, is that, what does that mean? It means that at a certain point, um, you... So these things are literally held up because in any object in space, so like the sun or anything else, it's always this balance in order to have an object between gravity is pulling something inwards and some kind of pressure is pushing it out. So for things like the sun, the sun is, you know, taking hydrogen and fusing it into helium in its core and that produces energy, which then produces a pressure outwards that sort of supports the sun against its own gravity. For neutron stars, um, that the force that's sort of holding them up against the intense gravity pulling inwards is actually the strong nuclear force. Um, so like that what works inside atomic, so atomic nuclei. So these are literally the density of an atomic nucleus. But at a certain point, if you keep adding more and more mass to the object, the gravity increases and there's a limit to how much this force can support against. So if you add just a bit more mass on top of a neutron star, um, it won't be able to support itself anymore and it'll collapse down into a black hole. So when these mergers happen, is that, I mean, I would imagine that that's what's created then. What, what is the yeah. aftermath of this? So for a vast majority of cases, it should create a black hole afterwards. Um, depending exactly how big each of the two neutron stars that merged were, it might be possible to create like a very massive neutron star. So if they were sort of really low um, light neutron stars such that when you put them together, you're still not quite above that limit to what it can support. You could get um, a very heavy neutron star afterwards, but most of the time a black hole should be formed. What's interesting is that we don't know for sure in this case which one happened. It's sort of right at that limit where we're not sure if a black hole or a neutron star was formed afterwards. Now, these are black holes are difficult to detect because of the gravitation. Light can't escape, so you can't actually see what's going on there. Yeah, exactly. So... There are a couple ways where we could tell if it was a black hole formed afterwards. But you're right, we can't see the black hole itself. So two ways. Um, one comes from the gravitational wave side. So if LIGO and Virgo in the future, so they detect gravitational waves, which come as you know the binary is getting closer and closer together and they're spinning around each other. But then after they merge, um, it's a process called a ring down, but it's kind of like imagine a top. So two things come together and then they merge, but then it sort of has to settle down, right? It has to settle into its final state. Um, and what exactly that looks like in gravitational waves can tell you if a black hole is formed. Unfortunately, they didn't detect it for this object because um, they 
they just didn't have quite the sensitivity yet. But in the future, they should be able to. And the other way comes from light that we could be able to tell. Actually, by looking at radio and x-rays from this explosion, we can have clues as to whether a black hole was formed. Got it. Now, um, so LIGO, I like to call it LIGO because it's, it actually stands for the Laser Inferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, right? Yeah. The, the W yeah. just gets dropped for no reason. It's, it's gravitational wave, so it's LIGO. Uh, so they specialize in detecting ripple. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, this this was crazy to me. So they did detect ripples in space time, which would include things like time travel and alien propulsion. Do you guys ever get thrown off by those calculations? <laughs> so I don't do those calculations myself. I'm not sure if they have good templates for what that would look like, but maybe that's the source of some of the noise they see. <laughs> I think it is. Uh, that's 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 what I think. Uh, yeah. So now, what is a gravitational wave? What what exactly are you detecting? Is it just the pulsing of these gravitational of these neutron stars circling each other? What what's going on? Yeah. So I mean, you described it well. Ripples Did I really? <laughs> oh yeah. Sure, I'll take it. So, it really is ripples in space-time. It's one of the best ways to think about it. And so the idea is that um, if you think of gravity as something that any object that is heavy is sort of like sitting, you know, it deforms space around it. So imagine it's sort of sinking into space around it. And then if you have two objects that are moving past each other sort of very quickly, exactly how that space is deformed changes and that creates sort of ripples that go outwards. And so for a binary in particular, so these two stars that are spinning around each other, you create waves at, you know, the frequency of how quickly they're going around each other. And those sort of, it's oh, actually, yes, it. so space itself is moving. So what LIGO is detecting is actually, they're detecting a change in the distance between two things. Um, and mm, yeah, okay. that makes sense. changes in distance that are like the size of an atomic nucleus. Like they're detecting very, very small changes in the distance between things as a wave passes by you. And so now this is important because it proved Einstein, again in MVP, again without collaboration. Uh, it proved Einstein was correct, right? Yeah, I mean, and there have been a couple other tests of that over the years, but yes, this so far um, seems to, um, as far as within the limits we can tell, agree perfectly with his theory of general relativity. So now, what does that mean for for science? Then that that another thing that, that another thing you postulated is true. I mean, it. Anything, or does it doesn't change much? I mean, it's a wonderful confirmation of that. <laughs> That's it. All right. <laughs> I like wonderful confirmations, but... In terms of what it changes, right, because this has been our working theory in the universe, so it shows that this theory is actually true in, in this sort of new way that we hadn't been able to probe before. Okay, that's fair. Uh, now, about this, I want to talk a couple of things about this collision because I want to put it into terms people can kind of understand because when you're talking about the vastness of space and you're talking about the weight of a neutron star, it's hard to really comprehend what these numbers really mean because in, they're kind of off the scale on what we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, we don't encounter anything that's as dense as the human population in a teaspoon. Uh, so... There was a hundred seconds between uh, what was it? There's a hundred seconds between oh, the la the waves traveled. Uh, the waves last. The gravitational waves lasted for a hundred seconds. That's what LIGO detected, right? Yeah, and I should say that's because that is sort of what they are sensitive to. So oh, the merger was it was emitting gravitational waves like for its entire existence. Like if I were to run across this room like around a table, I would create gravitational waves. So it was always detecting gravitational emitting gravitational waves. It's just that is the period when LIGO is able to detect it for about a... And during those 100 seconds, they circled each other 1,500 times? Yeah. Now, yeah. is that is that just... That's just by the pulses of the gravitational waves. You're not actually watching them circle each other, obviously. No, exactly. But you can see um, the sort of... I mean, there are some good graphics on there where you can see, yeah, the pulses going up and down. So um, you can see that sort of as they pass by. So sort of each pulse passes by and that represents sort of one time that they spin around each other. Because I'm kind of curious how some of this stuff's calculated because it, you know, the stars, it's in the paper it said that the stars were 200 miles apart when those gravitational waves were detected. How can you get that into, with a mile? Is it like plus or minus 100 miles or what? How, does, how do you figure no, that out? No, I mean, but the process comes from understanding 
the exact gravitational wave signal. And so from both how you know they pulse past you, so they detect these pulses of gravitational waves, which tells you about how um, fast they are spinning around each other, and then how the sort of how large the signal is. So the Timing tells you sort of, you know, how quickly they're going around each other and how large the signal is, so how strong the gravitational waves are, tell you about how massive the objects are. And then from that, you can, I mean, it's it's GR, it is gravity. You can figure out um, what the masses were. They're circling each other at this rate, so therefore how far apart they have to be. Oh, I see. Good old math just can kind of Good give you that. Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. Uh, now, the other thing that's kind of crazy is that we're seeing, we're detecting something that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, literally. Uh, literally. So th- tell me a little bit about the, the system, that this binary system. How old was that? How far away is this galaxy? How long ago did this happen? So, yeah, this galaxy is um, about 150 million light years away. So that means that the signal that we received, both the gravitational waves and the light, um, this merger actually happened that long ago. So about 150 million years ago. And we think from studying, so we've looked at the host galaxy now. It's sort of, it's a fairly run-of-the-mill but sort of old galaxy. So we think we know from studying the light from the galaxy itself, so not even the explosion, that this system that merged was probably a few billion years old when um, it did merge. So it's probably about that old. Um, and this happened 150 million years ago. And the light's just been traveling to us ever since. That's such a weird concept that everything that we see is happening so long ago. Because who knows what the state of that neutron star is right now? We'll never yeah. know. We'll have to wait 150 million years, like cryogenically preserve ourselves, thaw mm-hmm. ourselves out in 150 million years, and then look, and then we'll have the answer. I think that's the only way, right? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Basically. Uh, so... You, were, you, you study these because they produce all these heavy elements. And one of the mm-hmm. things I saw was that this thing produced gold and platinum. That is 10 times, basically a planet, 10 planets of gold and platinum. How exciting is that of a prospect? Um, it's incredibly exciting. And I think both, so those are the types of elements that are the most common in terms of what people have heard of and, you know, interact on their day-to-day um, basis. But I should say that, what basically we saw, and this is from studying the glow of this light over the sort of weeks afterwards um, and figuring out that it was consistent with sort of being this radioactive decay of very heavy elements indicating that they were synthesized in this explosion. And it's something that um, scientists have been debating for, you know, 70 some years where many of these heaviest elements in the periodic table come from. I think it's something like about half of the elements that are heavier than iron come from this process and were probably synthesized in the explosion. So gold and platinum are um, wonderful examples, especially because we interact with them so much in our day-to-day lives on Earth. But it really is a large quantity of elements that you know are important for producing planets and other things like that that are produced in this explosion. And now we have an understanding a better understanding of how they are actually produced in the universe. It's also really cool to think of an Earth-sized planet of gold or platinum, yeah. which is where my mind goes. That sounds pretty incredible. I'm, I unfortunately have to tell you, though, that it won't all stick together in a single planet. It gets thrown out in every direction, and it gets thrown out at something like 30% the speed of light. So it gets really blasted out into the universe and is quickly... Um, not very many gold particles are right next to each other anymore. <laughs> you just love destroying my dreams, don't you, Maria? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's okay. It still sounds like an incredible amount that's out there. We just have to go collect it, and then we'll be rich. Uh, now, now, you guys are observing all this stuff from a telescope that's in Chile. Here's a, here's a question. Now, don't take any offense to this, but I'm wondering, why are we still building terrestrial telescopes? Again, I'm going to go back to the man, the MVP, Edwin Hubble, the name we all recognize. The Hubble telescope is, is a space-based telescope, so we don't, you don't have all the, the garbage in our atmosphere distorting what we're seeing. That seems like the wave of the future. Why aren't we building more telescopes in space? Why are we still building terrestrial telescopes? So there's a couple of different reasons. Um, I mean, you're right that Um, having telescopes in space is incredibly valuable um, for the reason you mentioned that you're not looking through the atmosphere. So both you can get much crisper images and also there are some 
um, types of light, for instance, gamma rays, um, x-rays, even UV light a bit, that you can't really, like, it would not make it through our atmosphere, so you have to study it from space. But in terms of other telescopes, um, one of the big things is that it's hard to put large telescopes in space. So Hubble is a fantastic telescope. It's really so much scientists, science has come out of it, but it's actually a pretty small telescope. It's only two and a half meters across, whereas like the telescope I'm observing on in a few nights is six and a half meters across, and the one we're trying to build here is gonna be 30 meters across. So you can really build much larger telescopes here on Earth, which you can't actually, at least right now, we haven't been able to launch into space. Um, so there are complementary aspects uh, to both of them. Now, if I understand, I, I don't know what a meter is, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong here, let's talk inches for a second. So the, I just did an episode on the 100-inch telescope uh, at Mount Wilson. So from what I understand, the Hubble telescope, and Hubble and Hale were, I don't want to say rivals, but they were at the same time, I'm going to call them rivals for the sake of sake of excitement. Uh, the Hubble telescope, that, that mirror is only 94 inches, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the 100-inch telescope is yeah, obviously 100 inches. That's why it's called it. would be weird if it was a 30-inch telescope. That's 100. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so does that mean that, that the uh, – that's pretty incredible fact when you think about it because Hale wins then. He wins that, that competition. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. If your competition is who has the bigger telescope, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that always the case with competing men? So, yeah. so, so you guys are still building. So a ninety, a ninety. You said a ninety meter telescope. That's huge. Thirty meter. Thirty yeah. meter. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. ninety feet basically. Right. Yeah, exactly. 90, that's what I was thinking. That's gigantic. Yes, and so that does not yet exist. But that is what. Um, several groups around the world are working to build telescopes of that size now. All right. So I'm going to. I want to talk about one other phenomenon in closing. Um, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about this, and I'm hoping you know about it. I was reading about some of the other things you guys are discovering, and one of them is a zombie star. <laughs> Tell me about this. So the zombie star, um, the press is so good at coming up with names, by the way. Astronomers are uh, we're no, you guys are No, you guys are the worst. Things, we call things like the Very Large Telescope. But, yeah, so this zombie star um, – Basically, this was a supernova that happened, which when we first, when scientists first took uh, images and spectra of it, thought it was just the most, I, we were very excited, but we call it boring supernova. So it was just this run-of-the-mill supernova, massive star exploding. That was exactly what it looks like. But then um, they observed, kept observing it, and it did something bizarre. Whereas a normal supernova would have you know, lasted about 100 days and then faded away, sort of been constant and then faded away after 100 days. This one was very bright and sort of lasted for 600 or more days and sort of got brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter over that time period um, in a way that is unlike anything we've ever seen before and doesn't make sense in terms of our usual understanding of how supernova explosions happen and how the light is produced. Um, so people think this might actually, looking at all the data together, have been something where it was a really massive star that sort of underwent a couple of huge eruptions. So before it actually exploded as a supernova, maybe in the years and decades before, um, it sort of just had this huge eruption where it just threw off, you know, like 10 times the weight of our sun in its uh, material and just threw that out into space, but sort of lived afterwards and was still sort of puffing and going along and then did that again, you know, maybe a decade later and then finally probably exploded as a supernova. So it's just keeps exploding um, with enough energy that you think it might be a real explosion but it lived on and did it again. Oh, so so that's kind of so it's kind of just letting off steam every time. Yeah, but in terms of letting off steam, we're talking about yeah, something like it's throwing off maybe 10 times the total amount of material that's in our sun and, you know, energy equivalent to some usual supernova. So it was probably an incredibly massive star because you would have had to, you know, had to be like 100 times or 200 times heavier than our sun in order to have enough material do this yeah that sounds incredible so it exploded and then it, or it kind of like quasi exploded and then exploded again yes, except the second exactly. explosion was a supernova which is obviously significantly bigger yeah and critically it's dead for real after that <laughs> but yeah somehow yeah it had 
because supernova, we usually um, used to invoke the idea that like the actual core of the star actually collapses down. Whereas what it was doing before, and although it probably these earlier explosions had as much energy as some supernova, it's clear that the core of the star survived and it was just blowing off sort of its outer layers um, as it was doing it. But yeah, we've, there's actually some models that predicted this could happen, but um, we had never, this might be one of the most convincing cases uh, of observation so far. So it's called a zombie star, but in fact it's not really, because it just, it didn't like explode, die, and then was somehow brought back to life, and then started biting the stars around it, turning them into zombie stars. It didn't do that at all, from what no, I'm hearing. No, it didn't from do you. that at all. So yeah, it didn't actually die in between each of these, but it sort of, yeah. So it's I'm not sure what uh, equivalent action figure analogy would be, but it wasn't actually dead in between them. Okay, no, that's fair. You don't know what action figure? Those are your favorite movies. Yeah, sorry. You can't, that's all right. Um, all right, are there any other crazy discoveries you want to talk about before we before we finish up? Anything else going on no. down there you want to tell me about? Any about? Anything about your work that people should look out for? I'm just trying to, like, recover again and figure out what I was doing before all of this happened. Before you get pulled off <laughs> of yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so how can people get in touch with you if they're excited about what's going on there and they want to learn more? Yeah, they can reach me on, on Twitter then. I'm M-R-D-R-O-U-T on Twitter. Now, how come I'm that M-S or M-R-S or whatever? Why why, why Mr. Drought? Mr. Drought. Yeah, that's fun. So uh, my middle <laughs> initial is actually R. So it's actually my initials, but it, it has a nice uh, double of being Mr. Drought. So. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Well, Dr. Maria M.R. Drought, Thank you so much for taking so much time out. I love your passion about interstellar explosions, galactic explosions, I should say. Um, it's very exciting, and I also love that it translates to your favorite cinema. So um, that's very exciting for me. So thank you so much for telling me about all this and being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you want to learn more about these topics, more about this topic and others, go to fascinatingnouns.com and you can check out all of the episodes. we got the guest list. we got episode list. And you can follow on social media. See what's coming up. See what other kind of things we're into. You can find us on Pinterest, Twitter, YouTube, uh, all, all the social media platforms, Instagram, and all the links are at the bottom of the page. And if you like what I do, you can go to DanielJGlenn.com and find out about this and all the other projects. And if you do love it and you love this stuff, you can go to the bottom of the page and sign up for the newsletter. And it comes every week telling you about upcoming shows, new projects, all a little bit extra about the guests. So check it out, bottom of the page, FascinatingNouns.com. Thank you for listening. And of transmission.